Welcome to the Healthful Woman podcast. Today is Monday, June 15th, 2020. I'm very excited about our podcast today, Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology, The Few and the Proud, with Dr. Jolinthia Trotman. I've had the pleasure of knowing Jolinthia since she was an OBGYN resident at Mount Sinai. When she completed her residency, Jolinthia went on to do a fellowship in Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology, which is an uncommon but critically important subspecialty of gynecology. We talk about the field of pediatric and adolescent gynecology in general, who might need to see her, and what concerns or conditions she treats. We also discuss the joys and challenges of treating adolescents and the unique challenges she has working with children and adolescents for issues related to gynecology, sex, sexuality, and navigating all of that with their parents. It is a fascinating topic, and I'm sure you'll be able to tell right away how kind, thoughtful, and talented Jolanthi is. She is awesome. On Thursday, I'll be talking with Dr. Stephanie Melka about the delivery of twins. Double the fun. I put these seemingly unconnected podcasts in the same week simply because Jolanthia and Stephanie were OBGYN residents together at Mount Sinai. Now that was a great class. Stephanie has become an expert in the vaginal delivery of twins. And in our podcast, we talk about how she helps women with twin pregnancies achieve a safe vaginal delivery, and why so few obstetricians nowadays are able or willing to deliver twins vaginally. Vaginal delivery of twins is one of my areas of clinical research, and I think you'll notice our extreme enthusiasm for the topic. Thank you for listening. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Helpful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. We're here with Dr. Jolinthia Trotman, MDMPH, who's an assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive science, also an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics, because Jolinthia is a pediatric and adolescent gynecologist. Jolinthia, welcome to Healthful Woman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am honored to be here because you're one of my main mentors. So thank you. <laughs> you are. Uh, you're so sweet. So what <laughs> Jolinthia is referring to the fact that when she was a resident at Mount Sinai, I was already an attending, which means several things. One of which is that I'm older than you, <laughs> which which makes me feel um, old. And uh, Jolinthia was co-residents or like same year as uh, Dr. Stephanie Melka. Mm -hmm. And we all go way back. And, best uh, class ever. Best <laughs> class ever. Well, you know, some would say. Jolinthia, tell us, who are you? Where, where are you from? What's your story? Introduce us to you. My name is Jolinthia Trotman. That name came from a friend in my aunt's class. So I do not know where that name originated from. So that's the first question I typically get. Okay. So my aunt thought it was a cool name. So why not just use Jolinthia? So my mom was like, sounds great. So let's just do that. <laughs> so I am originally from New York, born in Brooklyn to a Caribbean family. So grew up half the time in Brooklyn and Trinidad and then Queens. So I'm a New Yorker through and through. Went to medical school at SUNY Downstate in Brooklyn. Came to Mount Sinai where I met Dr. Fox. And the other best class, class of 2012. After that, actually during residency, I realized that I really loved the adolescent population. That's the population I really wanted to take care of. So I kind of found my way through by doing different things. I wanted to be every kind of OBGYN at some point. I wanted to do family planning. I wanted to do urogyn for one day. 
I never <laughs> wanted to do GYN Ong. Um, you know, I wanted to do the minimally invasive at some point, but realized it was more about the group of patients and really didn't have access to that group of patients. How do I get to this group that really that really drives me? So I reached out to my mentors, of which Nadie is one of them, <laughs> Kathy Chen, and I kind of stumbled upon pediatric and adolescent gynecology. And I'm like, yeah, this this is this is it for me. These are the patients I want to talk to. I want to do that. I want to show up for them every single day. So that was my way into that. And now I'm here. And how did you find yourself in medicine in the first place? How did you decide on medical school? Uh, medicine, actually, true story. So I spent pretty much most of my summers in the Caribbean growing up. And I would read the newspapers and there would be all this devastation surrounding women in childbirth or women's health in, you know, in general in the Caribbean. So there was one story in particular that really stood with me. I was 14 years old, reading the newspaper, and there was a 21-year-old young woman who gave birth. Her baby died and she had some significant comorbidities that were terrible. She almost lost her life as well. And in that article, they really talked about how many women were dying in childbirth. And this is in 1994. So this is not, we're not that old. Uh, so I, at that point, literally at the age of 14, I decided I want to be a doctor. I want to deliver these women in this facet to take care of them. So that is what drove me. So instead of saying I wanted to be a doctor and that I wanted to be OBGYN, I just had blinders on. I wanted to be an OBGYN because I wanted to take care of women who were not being taken care of. Wow, that's so interesting because most people, I mean, certainly most people at the age of 14 maybe don't think about their future and I want to be a doctor, but certainly to have that focus that you want to do OBGYN, most people even going through medical school don't realize it until at some point it just hits them. But you you went in focused and driven. Yeah, I was a little crazy. Because in medical school, truly, I think had I not had that vision, I would have not have done OBGYN. It was probably one of my most difficult rotations in med school. People just seemed really unhappy. Like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and my mentor, I'll never forget, my mentor, I really had like a breakdown one day. You know, imagine being like, I want to be OBGYN. You finally get to that rotation. You're thinking you'll be happy. And you're miserable, right? Mm -hmm. And the residents are miserable and the attendings are miserable. Everyone's miserable. So I say to my mentor, I'm like, I can't do this. No one's happy. I'm going to do women's health and internal medicine instead. And she says, no, it's not OBGYN. It's just the environment. Right. So I took that and I went with it. And I still loved it at the end. It was just more of a culture shock, more of I thought I would be so happy doing it. And it's like, no, this is reality. And the happiness comes really after. Right. I mean, they're definitely have been and there continue to be a lot of people in OBGYN who, as you said, are unhappy doing it. I think that's true with medicine in general. And some of that is historical, meaning people who went into medicine expecting one thing and it either was something else or turned into something else. One of the classic things is in, you know, in the past medicine doctors, you know, made a ton of money. Yeah. They're, they were, you know, and their, their hours are great. And yeah. they got, you know, got the best table at the restaurants and they were so, you know, they're like the high society and that is not how it is now. That's gone. And so a lot of people sort of went into medicine in one, you know, with one culture and it sort of turned to something else that got very bitter. And also, you know, things in general around that time were changing about requirements for documenting and malpractice. And, you know, at the same time with OBGYN, you're up at night and the hours are so hard and it can definitely be that. And sometimes it's also just you don't see all the happy times. You know, when you're when you're a medical student, you're in the hospital, you're basically just seeing people who are running around the labor floor, people worst. at night at three in the morning. You're <laughs> like, wow, these people don't want to be here. But you right. don't see them like at two in the afternoon when they're with the patients and really enjoying their job. Yeah. And say, oh, this is great. I just am yeah, a, little, a little grumpy at night. That happens sometimes. Yeah. Um, but it is one of the things that a lot of medical students 
talk about and sometimes drives people away from the field, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of that is different now and what I see. I think that people maybe have their eyes open a little bit more when they're in medical school and residency. And the people for whom OB would or GYN be very difficult for them or very upsetting, just don't go into it. And yeah. so I think the the general attitude is, it seems a little more happy-go-lucky now yeah. amongst our field, which I is agree. nice. Yeah, I agree. I even see this in medical students now. They're so more focused. I think they really have a good sense of what the field is. And they really come in understanding, well, these are the things I'm interested in. This is what I like. I know this is tough, but this is what my passion is, which right. I think is really, really good. Right. And it's so hard to get into medical school now. Yeah. And people that age who are trying to make it big, they're not going to medicine. They're going into tech. They're going yeah. into business, business school. They're doing you know something yes. venture capital. And, and great. You know, <laughs> God bless them. Good for them. And the, and the people who go to medical school now, it's crazy. I mean, I look at these you know, these applications, these CVs. And it's, I was like, I'll never get to medical school if I applied now. I mean, they have like Nobel prizes. It's like like unbelievable. I see that every day, even for the people who are going into fellowship who reach out to me. I'm like, I would never get into fellowship now. You guys are just amazing, which is good. I think, I think it's a move in the right direction. Yeah. And so, and the students who go into it are so unbelievable and so qualified and so smart, but they also, they realize they're choosing medicine for reasons that are not the same uh, maybe then that we chose or people generation before us chose right. or whoever it was. And so I think there's less of that. And we're also, I think, doing a hopefully better job steering people into the right career paths as mentors, yeah. which you are now one yourself. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that so so that's how you got into medicine. And as you said, you're interested in OB and when you're resident by Julianthi was an awesome resident. She oh. was, you know, amazing doctor, amazing person. Everyone enjoyed and enjoys uh, working with her except Melka she said she said she can't stand you well I'm scared of Melka we have this running joke about who's scarier I think she is but she totally thinks I am so you know whatever yeah I don't think either of you are too scary (laughs) both you're both pretty chill so so you said that you were drawn towards the adolescent Mm -hmm. population and what is it about that population that drew you to them because everyone else on earth wants to avoid them entirely. They're going to get right? away. Yeah, I have four of them living in my house and, uh, <laughs> you know, and I love them dearly. But if they weren't my children, I, I you know, I'd probably just run away from them. It's yeah. like my mom said, like, I love you, but I don't like you. That was, that summed up my teens. If she hears this, she'll laugh at that. Oh, she'll hear this. Yeah. We're going to send her a link. <laughs> in medical school, actually, I really realized I love this population because they reminded me of myself and my friends when I was an adolescent and desperately needed guidance and not having the information. A lot of my friends, a lot of my family members and myself, you know, there were some decisions that we made that that really impacted your health that was not ideal. And if you had someone that took the time to explain it to you in the way that you understood then I think things would be a different way. So literally having a teenager when I was in med school come in very scared about something so minor, but they're really, really nervous. And being able to say, listen, this is what it is. You're fine. This is absolutely nothing. And seeing that their disposition change, seeing seeing that they're happy, hearing their plans for the future and being able to just make that impact at that one visit, 
that really got me into the field and say, hey, this is something that actually I love to do. So after seeing maybe 10 to 15 people in the clinic, I was not tired. I was happy. I was excited. Very different than how I felt after every other clinic. Right. So that was really like, hmm, this is the population that I think I like the most. But at that point, I had no idea this field even existed. Right. So it still was not on my list of things to do. It was just like, I really enjoyed this population. Right. So just for some background, what Chalinthia is referring to is after OBGYN, there's several options for you know, fellowship, what we call subspecialty. So for example, I do maternal fetal medicine, you know, high risk pregnancy. Shalantia mentioned before something called minimally invasive, which is a type of, you know, learning how to operate with, you know, laparoscopy and robotics and whatnot. And then also, you know, urogynecology, you mentioned, and oncology, cancer. And there is a subspecialty of pediatric and adolescent gynecology, but there are so few people who do it. I mean, when we were training, there was one person at Mount Sinai, Dr. Albert Alchek, a blessed memory, who was an unbelievable doctor. And he was really the only person around who did this kind of work, who would see, you know, either young girls or teenagers who had different problems. And he was trained better than anybody. I mean, he knew everything, but he was the only person to see. And there really weren't a lot of other people you could you know, look to say, oh, you know, he does it, she does this, what a great field. And so there weren't opportunities for as much mentorship or understanding about that subspecialty. And that's mostly because it's not all that common, right? right? Most most girls when they're, you know, young or teenagers don't need to see a gynecologist. And so they're not all over the place in right. a sense. And so how did you end up finding training for this? Good question. It was Thank difficult. <laughs> It really goes back to to second year of residency when I was kind of like, where do I want to do with my life? This is the population I like. And I literally spoke to one of my mentors who's no longer here. And they were like, well, let's just Google to see like what an OBGYN who's interested in the younger population, what can they do? And I stumbled across the North American Society for Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology's website. And I believe there were four training programs in the entire United States at that point with two, one or two in Canada. So at that point, there wasn't a lot of information. You know, we kind of read, this is what they take care of. This is what this subspecialty of gynecologists do. But I really had no idea. So what I did was I looked into the fact that they had an annual clinical research meeting and I went. So I believe 30 year residency, I went to the clinical meeting and it was two days and I fell in love. It literally spanned from everything from SCD testing to some very complex cases that I had no idea even that even existed. And it really married adolescent medicine, which is a pediatric subspecialty, with gynecology, with urology, with gen surgery, with everything for this younger population. And I knew at that point, this is exactly what I wanted to do. Right. And so just for context, when Jolinti says there was four programs in the US, for maternal fetal medicine, there are on any given year, 100 to 200 fellows, people who are training in that subspecialty. So you're talking about, you know, that versus four, four. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's it's just a, the the numbers and also the operations that are generally for congenital abnormalities, meaning girls who are born with certain abnormalities of the genital tract that have to be repaired, corrected, or, you know, either as babies or as children or as teenagers. And so these operations are 
sometimes very complex and involve you know the bladder, the rectum, and there's other specialties that get involved. And so, as you said, it is very complicated, and you don't get to see a lot of that in training. Right. Absolutely. There are a lot of young women now, older women and young girls who continue to have delay in diagnoses, not getting the right treatment, just because in order to be trained in this, it is so unique and you have so few sites. So it was really, really important. One thing that I really learned in training is that it's important to not only see it, but in order to also know where are the major centers that you can refer patients to and then manage them, right? right. So it's it's a very unique specialty that I love to get into the nitty gritty for, but it really let me realize, A, I've always been interested in disparities because that's what I really cared about when I was 14, right? right. Making sure that we don't impact young women in this way. And although it's not obstetrics, it's in a completely different realm that I didn't even think about or appreciate. The other aspect that I really loved when I went to that clinical meeting was the pediatric population, who I had no idea would be interested in seeing. But think about seeing a three-year-old or four-year-old for a gynecologic problem. Could you imagine how the child is nervous and upset and the parents who have no idea what's going on? And to be able to really educate, to be able to help and see that smile and impact that family moving forward. I'm like, this sign me up. This is exactly what I want to do. Right. And just to, to focus in on that, if a four-year-old has a gynecologic problem, right? The pediatricians aren't trained to deal right. with it. I mean, if it's something very, very common, basic, you know, all right, fine, that they see all the time, okay, but they're not trained to deal with it. And gynecologists aren't trained to deal with it right. because they're not going to have the same problems that adult women are going to have, obviously. And so you're sort of left with, well, who's going to take care of my daughter? Exactly. Right. Who, who can do that? It's just, you know, pediatrician's like, I don't know. And the gynecologist's yeah. like, I don't, I don't know. know. And so that's where you come in. I mean, you do a lot of other things, but that's where really like you come in with like a cape on and a big S <laughs> on your chest. And like, like I am the one who can take care of your daughter because I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And I've seen this and I know what to do. And that's like really where your specialty, I think people don't even realize that this exists. People don't, yeah. you know, because again, most people, their daughters don't have gynecologic problems. But for those who do, and who have found you or someone like you, they'll say there's there's like no one else on earth who could take care of their child. Yeah. And that's that's incredible. Where did you ultimately train, just so Where everyone knows? Yeah. So back to the marvelous Dr. Fox and how he's amazing. Had it not been for him, I would not have been here because I almost did not do fellowship. So as you mentioned, you know, the additional training needed. I, you know, at the end of third-year residency, I wanted to just get life started. I'm like, I want to do this. Maybe I'll make it my little niche and I'll do it that way. And you really said, literally, Trotman, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> we were on the labor floor one day. I said, oh, I think I'm going to just, you know, do general OBGYN, nothing against general OBGYN, and I'll like make adolescence my niche. And you said, well, why not do the fellowship? And I didn't have a good reason. And you said, well, you can always go back if you don't, if you did fellowship and you didn't like it, you can always be a generalist but it's going to be hard to do the other way around. And I literally took your advice and I applied. So thank you for that. Mm. At that point, I mentioned there were, I believe, four programs that were actively taking fellows and maybe two others that weren't in that cycle. That's how little patients, people were being trained. And I ended up going to D.C. So I went to MedStar Washington Hospital Center that has an affiliation with Georgetown. And the Children's Hospital is Children's National Medical Center. So I trained in D.C., Children's National Medical Center, under Dr. Gomez Lobo, who also was at Mount Sinai at some point, And she is phenomenal. And really, fellowship was literally learning medicine all over again. 
because there is very little aspects of residency that prepares us for pediatric and adolescent gynecology. I learned, I had to unlearn a lot of things and I had to approach patients from day one in a very different way, literally from day one. So it was definitely necessary. And I think had I did the other way, I would have made a lot of mistakes and stumbling blocks and probably never be able to really understand how we how we generally approach patients because you do lose patients when you walk in the door. If right. you're not prepared for that first initial experience or exposure, especially with the younger patients, you're not going to get you're not going to be able to impact them in any way. Right. And how long is the training? So the training varies. When I started, you had programs that were one year to two years. Now, for the most part, most training programs are two years across the board. I think with the exceptions of some programs in Canada, we're really moving towards having it organized because we're hoping to become certified one day. ABOG, which you'll explain right. what that is. Because <laughs> no one understands. Because no one knows what ABOG is. Yeah. <laughs> so our governing body has actually moved towards some sort of focused practice exam for people who have an expertise in pediatric and adolescent gynecology, which I call PAG. So now we have about 11 or 13 training programs right. since I trained. It's a lot. The hope is that every children's hospital has a PAG provider available and every OBGYN program has a PAC provider available. Right. I mean, ABOG, the American Board of OBGYN, basically oversees you know, our training and credentialing and things of that sort. And there are some fellowships or subspecialty training which are officially under their auspices, meaning when you finish, you take a written exam, then you go to Dallas and take an oral examination. And assuming you pass both of them, you get you know a certificate that says you are board certified in this subspecialty. Like so maternal fetal medicine has that. So I got board certified in OBGYN. And after I finished my fellowship training, I had to get board certified from the same board, but board certified in maternal fetal medicine. And that's true with a lot of subspecialties. Some of them particularly ones that are either very small or sometimes newer, they exist and there are training programs, but they're not yet under the auspices of ABOC. So there is no formal credentialing board certification. The upside is you can train without doing all that stuff. The downside is if you're a patient, it's hard to know sometimes what kind of training does this person have in that subspecialty. Is it someone, like you said, you might do on your own is, oh, I'll just do OBGYN and you know specialize in seeing adolescents, which and I'm sure you wouldn't great at it, but as you said, you wouldn't have had that formal training and maybe not all the nuances or maybe not the volume. And so people, when they would come to you, they wouldn't really know the difference. Uh, but now it's sort of, you know, formal. I did this training and, you know, hopefully if it does get accepted to be under that, you know, ABOG, you can say, okay, I'm board certified. And then you'd probably be one of the people like giving the exam as opposed to taking the exam. And when you mentioned Dr. Gomez Lobo, so she was, when I was a resident, we actually had... In four years, I think four residency directors. I guess we were not a great class. Um, <laughs> so she was my residency director when I was a second year resident. And she is, she was, and she is awesome. And she's one of the, the awesome. people who helped. It's so funny that she was like your person for doing PAG. And she mm-hmm. was, I look at her the same way for me doing MFM, that she really pushed me to do it. And she was an amazing teacher and mentor. And she would, you know, surgeon and just a really great doctor. And so I'm, I'm happy that you went there. And, and listen, I, I I still agree with the advice I gave you then. If if it's something <laughs> it you want to do, yeah. 
then you should get as much training in it as possible because A, you'll be excellent at it. B, you'll feel more comfortable doing it. And C, you'll really get to focus your career on what you want to do. If you sort of, you know, I'll do a little this, a little that, maybe it'll work out, maybe it won't, but you may as well. And, you know, it's, I'm always in favor of people making very little money for a longer amount of time. <laughs> it's just great yes, to train. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so, and so now, so you finish your training and, you come back. What do you do on a typical day or week? So, you know, what kind of things you do? Because people don't really understand maybe what your schedule would be like. Right. So that is variable. So what I what I do now being at Mount Sinai is I have a really good range of a more basic PAG, and I'll discuss what that means to some complex. So I'm really building up that complex aspect of my care. So for the most part, my week involves really great hours for doctors. So, you know, nine to five office hours. And, you know, in that time, I'm seeing bread and butter. So some reproductive health counseling, some 14 or 13 year olds to a lot of problem visits. And I like to break up my problem visits into prepubertal or, or young girls who have not yet gone through puberty or have had their first period and postpubertal. So I go from anywhere from a newborn to about age 24. 25, which is when adolescence really, really ends. So people don't think that 23-year-olds are adolescents, but they really are. They All of their brain synapses hasn't quite synapsed fully yet. Yes, I'm, um, I'm aware. <laughs> so <laughs> Unfortunately, from... <laughs> I'm, I'm 45 and my brain synapses, they're, just not, there. they're, they're not there yet either, but I'm, I'm working on it, hopefully soon. <laughs> so a benefit, and I'll go to what I do, a benefit is I, I get to spend more time with patients. So a typical new patient visit for me is about 40 minutes, which I think is really a privilege, and especially with how medicine is today. And it really bodes to Mount Sinai and the fact that they've really focused on making sure patients get optimal care. Mm -hmm. uh, so for the prepubertal girls, I really spend time really talking to their moms and the you know gaining the interest and the trust of the patients. And they mainly come in for vulvovaginal concerns most often. So lichen sclerosis or disorders of the skin, um, vulvovaginal itching. Sometimes you have early puberty in the younger age groups, um, some pelvic pain. And every now and then we do get the more complex um, young patients. These are the patients that are born with their uterus may not be fully developed. They may be born with or without their complete vagina. I do share patients with pediatric surgery and pediatric urology. And these are the patients who their anatomy didn't quite fully form as, the, as it should. And there are connections where there should not be or no openings. So I do, you know, share those patients with them. For the most part, those families are just being counseled about what to expect as your child ages, what to expect for childbearing, for you know the health of the vagina, for the uterus, for the ovaries, and those things. And very rarely we need to do surgery on patients that are in that age group. So for the most part, that age group is going to be mainly counseling and some medical management issues. Because they'll need surgery later? They won't need surgery at all? Yeah. So yeah. So for some disorders, they need surgery very early. And some of them would have had surgery maybe within the first few days of life before they even met me. And then later, GYN always comes in to say, okay, if your uterus, if your vagina is connected to the to the bladder, what does that mean? If there was one tube for everything, what does that mean? Sometimes we do have to, as a GYN, do surgery early on, mainly for diagnosing and for identifying what the anatomy may look like. Sometimes, you know, not to be too complicated, but to remove some of the structures. So if the uterus is attached somewhere in that in the pelvis that it should not be, sometimes the answer is actually removing that piece of structure before they go to puberty and need a bigger surgery, right. right? Or sometimes just like connections. And there are some large centers that actually do some of those more complex reconstructive surgeries, but there's always a role for the gynecologist early to counsel the families on 
what does this mean for my child as she grows? Is this important? Is this going to impact her health? Issues surrounding fertility does become an issue even for a three-month-old because the parents have already named their grandchildren, right? right? (laughs) (laughs) So that really is important. And we have found that families who get counseled early on for these very complex cases about their reproductive outcomes are happier and are more knowledgeable. Yeah. And it it makes so much sense. I mean, listen, I'm a parent and when something's going on with your kid, like that's it. That's That's all that matters in the world. Mm -hmm. That's all that matters in life. And, you know, someone, their kid has diabetes, which is a very difficult diagnosis for parents and kids. And but we know what it means. Like you yeah. sort of, you like you can get it, you can understand, you know how to treat it, you know what to expect. And so, okay, like you could put it in a box and sort of figure it out. But something like this, for mm-hmm. most people, it's, it's a complete mystery. They never even thought that this was possible. Right. They never understood that this was an option or what needs to be done. You you can't really Google it. There's right. just so it's just such a complicated thing. And each individual situation is going to be unique, mm-hmm. right? It's not just like, well, these are the three possible things that could happen. There's three million things three that could happen. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to go to someone and say, okay, I understand what's going on. Here's what it means for childhood. Here's what it means for adolescence. You may or may not need X surgery. This is what's going to mean for your life, for fertility, for health and whatnot. It changes someone's entire childhood themselves and also their parents. It does. Because in that age group, it's really more the parents than the it's child in that more sense. The parents, yeah. And the parents get to advocate for their child. And as a child is growing, I like to say, you want to normalize this. Like you don't want right. to make the child feel they're an outcast because and kids are so resilient. And if you tell a three year old, four year old your body is different in this way and you're unique, they're gonna grow up understanding that. And when they're 14, 15, when the real peer pressure starts, they're gonna be more resilient. Right. As opposed to what was this? I've been hiding. There's something wrong with my body. That just adds stress to an already stressful time. Right. Do you find that a lot of parents want to keep this a secret from their children? That's a good question. And it depends on where I am in the in, in, in the in the in the United States. Okay. So I do find that some parents who I think they want to overprotect their children, I guess mm-hmm. it's, it's it's a better word. But I do have a minority, maybe about 10% of, of parents actually do want to keep it from their children and actually come in without the child. Mm. And then it's a lot of counseling to the parents surrounding why it's important for the child to know and make some of these decisions. Right. So there is an entire body that have moved towards doing going against doing any surgeries in younger children if it's not li- if it's not needed for life to wait till the child can make the decision earlier on. To help them be involved. Yeah, and really give the child back the autonomy. So I do find there are some parents, but most often we're able to really counsel the parents to like make them feel comfortable enough to bring the child in. So it's rare that I've had a parent that has refused. I have had one or two that's absolutely refused and I've never seen them again. But for the most part, after you counsel and you kind of get them hooked up with support groups and show them, you know, the data, have them meet other parents maybe over the phone, most families are open to introducing that idea to their kids. Right. And since it's not, you know, usually emergent, you have a long time to sort of talk and people, you know, go through their process. They they Mm -hmm. first, you know, sort of understand what it is, then maybe accept and, you know, sort of come to grips with it and then are ready to move forward. Maybe (laughs) not on the first visit, but eventually okay so you so so that's in the pre that's in the pre-pubertal group. And, then, group and then you're adolescence and then, you're, you know right 11 so to, to, to 45 now <laughs> 11 <laughs> know, to 24 right? 11 okay 20. yeah so, and and that you can have a lot of the same issues as mm-hmm. you do in the pre-pubertal but here comes a lot of your menstrual disorders so, so issues surrounding periods 
pelvic pain, ovarian masses, pelvic masses, really gender diverse care as well. That's another thing that we do very often for both the post and the prepubertal as well. Polycystic ovarian syndrome, which also goes under menstrual disorders most times, but not always. Fertility preservation things. This is coming up a lot more for us as well as there is a lot of survival from childhood cancers. So we do have a lot of patients who have been diagnosed who are coming for to discuss fertility preservation either, either before or after cancer treatment. And this can also be true for the prepubertal group as well. Right. So you mean like someone, like a like a teenage girl who's about to undergo chemotherapy, chemotherapy. or radiation and, and they're right. worried that it'll induce sterility. Correct. And so there's options potentially to harvest eggs. Yeah. And, you know, freeze them right. so that later in life she can, because again, her uterus is still there. Uterus is still uh, there. But mm-hmm. if she, if her ovaries are not working and she's, you know, sort of menopausal as right. a young woman, you could take hormones to fix that, but it won't make you fertile. Fertile, again. correct. So that can help. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. I yeah. didn't even think about that. Yeah, we do that. So we are, not, obviously we're not reproductive endocrinology, right. but we do a lot of the counseling and there actually is ovarian tissue cryopreservation or removing either the entire or part of the ovary that we actually can do for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a lot of children's hospitals, the pediatric gynecologists are actually doing that procedure and working with their reproductive endocrinology colleagues in order to harvest eggs and those right. things. So we do a lot. There are com- there are complete programs that are really focused on fertility preservation, and not only for cancer survivors, but for blood disorders, for patients who are transgender. There's a lot of movement in that area as well. Wow. And how do people come to you? Are they referred from their pediatrician, from a gynecologist? Do they find you on Google, from friends? Like, How do people even know to come to you? All of the above. So I've literally had a mom who said that she had a three-year-old with vaginal bleeding and she knew nowhere else to go. And she Googled, she found me and she showed up at my office. So that's, that's one way. Pediatricians. So we do a lot of outreach to pediatricians, let them know that our services are here. Right. They must love you. They absolutely love me. And I love them. Yeah. They, they must. I mean, I, I just can't imagine any them. pediatrician who would not want to say, oh my God, yeah. please see, see John Thiel. Like, yeah. thank God you exist. They, you know? they, they send me, they, they send me a lot of complex contraception. So they could obviously prescribe birth control pills, but right. if it's bleeding, if there's problems, if she has some medical problem, then I take those. A lot of pelvic pain. And they ask a lot of questions. They send me a lot of patients and, you know. Right. The other way you get patients is, is they text me and I text you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who am I supposed to see? And I see as possible. From OBGYN, I do get some patients from my OBGYN colleagues. And then from the pediatric urologists and the pediatric surgeons, they actually send me quite a bit of patients as well, which is excellent because right. PAD cannot work by ourselves. We right. Just by virtue of how we are and the complex level of patients we see, we have to work together. So the other group that's super complex that I really love to take care of are the group that has ovarian failure, so primary ovarian insufficiency at a young age. So we do a lot of hormone replacement therapy. So we work a lot with endocrinology in that aspect. Bleeding disorders, so we work with hematology. So we see these, these young ladies who are more complex than general because they can see a general OBG you right. know, there's nothing really specific about just eating birth control or contraception. It's when you have this higher level of care and there are things that can be done that could be potentially harmful, that it really helps to have someone with our expertise. Wow. And are all of the people who do PAG, are they all first OBGYNs who do training or any of them pediatrician to then do surgical training or any other way to get sort of an entry into this field? I imagine there's people who do adolescent medicine who aren't GYNs, but the people you work with, are any of them trained differently? Yeah. So no, for PAG, they're all under OBGYN, but we do a lot of 
cross care with adolescent medicine. So there are a lot of adolescent medicine specialists who do LARCs, so that's long-acting reversible contraception, so IUDs and Paragards, IUDs, sorry, and Explanons. They do a lot of complex GYN as well, minus the surgical aspects, and a lot of them are really, really good. So I tend to work with that field a lot. There are some PAG providers that are actually housed under adolescent medicine. So if you go to different programs, you may find a GYN listed under adolescent medicine, which works really well. I actually spend two days a week at the adolescent medicine, some adolescent health center, which is awesome. So Mm -hmm. that's where patients see me a lot. There are some of us who are housed under pediatric surgery. So that's another way that we can be housed. So although that's our specialty, we actually work very closely with those those groups. Right. And a lot of that is, as you said, relationships as you, the more time you practice and the more, you know, sort of interaction you have with like the pediatric urologists, you said Mm -hmm. pediatric surgeons, they're just going to know like yeah. you're their go-to person and you do a lot of cases together. But, yeah. you know, for I assume that most of the listeners of this podcast would be probably mothers mm-hmm. or, you know, or fathers of your patients. I mean, I assume, you know, we may have some teenagers or young adults who listen, but how would someone even know that they needed to come to you? Meaning who should be asking to see a pediatric or adolescent gynecologist, they just, because they see their pediatrician or, or whatever it is, and maybe not all pediatricians refer to you or know about you. What could a parent do to maybe advocate to see you and what circumstance would that happen? And that ranges from my, I, as a parent, have no idea what to expect, <laughs> which is surprising. I find that a lot. I'm like, weren't you a 13 or 14 year old at some point? But it's, it's a different time. So if there is any problems with the period, and I think that is like the first step, right? So most of the young ladies come to me or, or are having challenges that way. And that's how I get a lot of the first set of patients. So this problem with the period, I don't have it at all, or she's having it too much. That's really the first step to say, hey, I need you to see someone who has a specialty in that you know, in gynecology for teens, because a lot of times people are masking it by just throwing on birth control pills. And that could completely change or delay a diagnosis for many, many years. And we're able to kind of really delve into what is the cause first before we start, you know, what what the treatment is. So that would be one of the first things. A lot of pelvic pain. So we have a lot of young women who are suffering. And a lot of times moms say, oh, it's okay that your period hurts because that's how it was for me. And they're suffering. They're delaying diagnosis of endometriosis. There's a delay in a diagnosis of uterine problems that the blood isn't completely, you know, being expelled. So those are the first two things that I would say for the general public. These are the things that would most likely come to me. Also, vulvovaginal stuff, a lot of burning, itching, irritation that's just not going away. These are the things that really affect quality of life that we can take care of pretty much usually relatively quickly. Right. And, you know, when, when, friends or colleagues, you know, talk to me or ask me questions. I mean, generally for almost everybody, you know, they're going to speak to their pediatrician first. That's pretty typical. And when when people call me and ask me and say, hey, you know, my my daughter has this and we saw a pediatrician and then, you know, she sent her to a to get an ultrasound and then she sent her to an endocrinologist and then to a radiologist. And, and I say like, do you have a, you know, someone who's like young? Yes. Is the problem gynecologic in any way whatsoever? Yes see a pediatric gynecologist, like they exist. And if they're not available, like if you're in a town where it doesn't have one, okay, fine. Then maybe it's not possible, but like, like we have you. And so I said, just see Jolanthia. Like it's the easiest (laughs) thing in the world because this is her expertise. And because she's an expert in young people and in gynecology. And when there's a confluence of those two, you really want to be seeing a a specialist. And I want to switch gears for one second. When you're seeing these, you know, you know, girls, young women, young ladies, as you said, 
how do you address the idea that they're so uncomfortable to see you? I mean, they don't want to see you. They I mean, don't. I mean, I mean, they don't want to see anybody. They yeah. don't go to doctors, and then you're like, you're going to the gynecologist. Yeah, and, you know, as a 13 year old, she, you know, they're terrified, they're annoyed, they're miserable. You know, and how do you make them feel comfortable? Number one, just to open up and talk to you, which is difficult with all teens, obviously, and children. And number two, you know, you may have to examine them. And that's also very difficult for anybody, but certainly for that age group. How do you how do you do that? Yeah. So I think some of that can't be taught. I think some of that really comes back to personality as well. But the first thing is goes back to what I said earlier. When you walk into that door, you can really make or break your relationship. So the first thing is you must build a relationship with the patient. If your patient is three or if your patient is 13 or your patient is 23, if the care provider or the parent, the guardian is there, you have to go to the patient first. The other thing that we do is we tend to dress down. So I tend to not dress very professional, never wear a white coat in the office unless I'm in the OR because that's the first boundary. So you really want to make yourself into almost on that patient's level so the patient trusts you. Right. So, you're a normal person. You're a normal person. Yeah. So, you know, which helps me for my wardrobe. I don't have to like, you know, <laughs> get super dressed every day. So you really want to, and you really want to make eye contact. So one of the best stories I had, I think she was like four or five years old. She hated doctors. Her mom said she hates every doctor. She hated me the first two seconds of our visit. She refused to do anything. By the end of the visit with an examination, she was telling her mom, I really like that doctor. I really like that doctor. So how do we get there from the patient really being afraid, which they've probably seen a couple of doctors before they've seen me. And you're delving into a private place that their mom or their caregiver has said, no one should be looking for pretty much since they know what's going on. So how do you get there? So I tend to do a lot of Younger kids, a lot of talking, how's school, how's everything, playing, giving stickers, depending on their age, really building up that trust. And I gauge what's important for the patient. So there are some patients that I know I'm not going to be able to examine them today. And that's okay. There is usually very little reason for me to require on this day, I must do an exam on this patient. And if I think that's going to bring additional stress and that's going to bring additional strife, I let them know early, today we're just talking. Today we're not doing anything else. We're just going to talk. You're going to let me know. And then we'll go further if we need to. Usually I can get past 90% of patients with doing an exam in that way. So I'm building trust. We're playing. We're talking. For for teenagers, I'm really more interested in what's happening in school, what's happening in life. I always, and this is a strife sometimes between the parents and I, I always do a confidential part for any patient who's about 12 and older sometimes a little bit younger, depending on what the presenting complaint really is. And at the time of that confidential, we really spend a lot of time relationship building. So I think a lot of families think they step out of the room, we're like, so are you having sex? And it's usually <laughs> like, that's usually, that really is the last thing I ask because I want them to feel comfortable with me. I'm an adult. So why are they going to want to tell this stranger who's an adult what they're really doing? Now, maybe 10 minutes down the line after we've built up that kind of rapport and they know they can trust me, then we may decide, okay, let's talk about some sexual things. Who are you attracted to? Are you doing anything that would make you feel uncomfortable? So we spend a lot of time relationship building and that then allows me to do an exam. And the exam is always driven by the patient. So there are some patients that leave and I never do an exam on them until maybe the second or the third visit even. And right. that's okay. That's, a, that's usually okay. Right. Uh, what, what do the patients call you? 
Oh, it depends. Dr. T. Some patients call me Jill. I do have some patients call me with my first name, which mm-hmm. is completely fine. And some call me Dr. Trotman. But, you know. Right. So whatever they're comfortable with. Whatever the same they're way. comfortable with. And I ask them, what are they comfortable with being called? And, you know, I. So that's what it. Honestly speaking, if the patients call me Jill, I would be completely okay with it if that is what builds the relationship between us. Because it's always going to be a respect level there. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, they, they know who they're saying. They're they know not, what they're saying. Right. Yeah. The other things I do for my younger is distraction. So these phones, the iPads, the whatever gets them through that exam, I tend to let parents know it's okay in that moment. So if right. they want to look at Peppa Pig or whatever while I'm doing their dental exam, that's fine. And I ask permission of the younger kids too before I do any exam. Right. Well, it's also a lesson that they it's a it's, lesson. yeah because they need because yeah. they're as you said they're told like you know off limits. But off, this idea yeah. that even even a doctor should be asking you should be to asking. make sure it's okay, right? And I tell them I'm like I always do a test. So who can tell you know what what do you call your private part? So right. we get the name. Then then who's allowed to look? So I figure out who, and they're telling me I'm asking them not the not the parents. Right. What if someone in school was to ask what would you do? And then I ask for their permission and I say, it's because mom is here, dad is here, or grandma's here, and there's a problem. So is it okay if I take a look? And if they say no, then then the answer is no. Sometimes mom has to take a picture. Right. Yeah. And that's it. And you must obviously be screening for and unfortunately picking up cases of abuse. Yes. I assume. Yeah. Which is fortunately very rare, but I have picked up a few cases right. of that. And it's it's always, that honestly is the hardest part of my job. Right. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's just awful. It I is, mean, you it's know, terrible. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's probably rare because people won't take them to the doctor. For right. It. It's, if someone right. else takes them to the doctor right. and you realize, you know, what's going on. That's, right. That's, you know, that's devastating, obviously. And then when you have to examine them, like you said, if they're older, right? So if they're children, if they're, let's say, you know, five years old, six years old, as you said, and the parents are there. What do you do with the teenagers? Is it the parents are out of the room and you have a, a someone else in the room with you? Or how does that work? I figure out what the teen wants at the time of our confidential. Mm-hmm. So I basically, I give the support person no say. Obviously, if the, if, if the patient has developmental delay, that's a different mm-hmm. story. But if right. not, I just ask them all to step out. And in that confidential, at some point, I say, okay, we're going to do an exam and this is what we're going to do. Because sometimes I don't even have to look. But if we do, do you want... XYZ in the room or do you not want them in the room? And if sometimes they want them there and then I invite them back, sometimes they want them in the room or behind the curtain and that's okay. And then I ask about the about the the chaperone. So do you want the chaperone in the room or do you want the chaperone standing behind um, the curtain? So I give them that they wait. And some young ladies say they want no one else in the room but just me and they understand that that's okay and, and we go with it. So I basically let them decide who's going to be there in the room. With, right. With it me. sort of gives them a sense of power over yeah what's happening they should have power yeah. they should have they should be able to advocate for themselves they should be able to tell me how they really feel and not do what i say so i i really give them a lot of the a lot of the power in that way right and how do you delve with sort of the whole mental health aspect because you must pick up a lot of i mean you know anyone who sees children and teenagers is going to be working with mental health but obviously in this particular arena it's going to maybe be more prevalent is that something that, that you focus on or you have colleagues who you work with and how do you how do you navigate that it's something that's very prevalent and i find a lot of our young ones have anxiety today and not only the teenagers but even some of the younger patients as well so i do my own like some mom told me i'm like a counselor (laughs) (laughs) so i do my i do my own screening with and without the families there and i kind of gauge as to if this is something that's just 
you know, basic anxiety, basic depression that, you know, we can kind of talk through or if it's something more severe. I work with a lot of really good social workers at the Adolescent Health Center. So if I have anyone that screens a little bit higher than I think I'm comfortable or they don't have a therapist or someone they could speak to, I always refer them to the social workers there. Right. And this is something that the parents would know about. Just something yeah. that the parents would know about. We yeah. work in the confidential part. If there's anything that's mental health involved and there's any concern of harmful behaviors or even being depressed or really anxious, I do ask for permission for the anxiety and the depression, but any screening for self-harm or or right. harm to someone else, that is something that we immediately get the guardians involved with. The last thing I wanted to talk about is is that very complicated balance. And we were speaking about this before we started recording. This idea of, you know, as as children get older, you want to give them more and more autonomy over their, you know, their own health, their own decisions and let them make, you know, those choices for themselves. But on the same hand, they're minors and they have guardians and they have parents. And for most things, whatever, it doesn't really make a big difference either way. But in some situations, there really is maybe a conflict there. And how do you navigate this idea of giving the teenagers, let's say, or even you know older children, giving them the idea that they do have autonomy, they do have power, they do have confidentiality and all these things, and then the parents? And I assume, I assume some parents disagree where you draw the line. And how do you how do you navigate that in terms of A, what you do, and B, when it is a conflict with what the parents want you to do? Yeah. Ugh. The conflict part is hard. Yeah. So <laughs> this was actually the my key research and fellowship oh. issues surrounding confidentiality and how do you navigate that? Because we've had some patients who have said, I'd rather die than let my parents know X, Y, Z. Right. So, and that's not unique, to be honest. So, what I tend to do goes back to relationship building in the beginning. So, I see everyone at the same time. So, I have three visits in one, pretty much. So, walk into the room, I see the the parents or the guardians and the child at the same time. And at that, before I do the confidential, I say, "All right, we're going to spend a little time a little bit later. I just want to reassure you that anything that comes up as it relates to the medical problem today, you will be a part of the decision making." And I give a lot of input and a lot of information to the families before I ask them to leave the room because I may be, and usually I am the first physician who's actually successfully had them step out of the room. And that's hard for parents, especially if you have your 13 or 14 year old and they're in pain or there's something going on and you want to make sure you're part of that medical decision making. So my research actually found that was what parents were most concerned about. They weren't really so concerned about the sex and those part of it because they thought their kids, they know exactly what their kids are doing. They were really afraid that they're not going to be part of the medical decision making. And the kids actually were afraid sometimes when their parents left the room as well. So I do spend time saying, okay, we're just going to talk about some things, make sure you're safe and healthy and your mom or your dad, we're all going to make the decision together. Once I say that, I very rarely have someone leave the room. Or if I do, they're they're standing very close to the door, right. but they usually right. they usually do leave. Because I mean, all all people who take care of you know, children, you know, pediatricians have this. Yeah. And there's all, you know, they talk about how do we navigate that and at what age and for what questions. Okay. But that's for, you know, pediatrics. Right. When they're coming to see you, it's like that, that idea on megadose steroids, because uh, it could really explode <laughs> potentially. These are very high stress yeah. situations. Absolutely. And, and so, so I, listen, you're, uh, you're obviously a great communicator and, and you're, you're doing an amazing job. But what if the parents disagree and they say, listen, I, you know, I need to know or I can't have this. Is it just sort of it is what it is. This is how I do things. And yeah, you know. then then I say it's it's protected by the New York state law. In which way? 
<laughs> so there is all right. Is it really protected? Or is it, really or is it sort of like what, what I used to say to my campers in Wisconsin when they said, I want to sleep in my sleeping bag, but no, yeah, you can't. It's Wisconsin can't. state law. It's so, against the rule. Like, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. So they actually do have, um, it is protecting the reproductive rights for teenagers mm-hmm. are protected. They are considered uh-huh. emancipated minors as it pertains specifically to reproductive things. Now, granted, I may never get, I may be talking about school, right? you know, but I do need to get to that because right. we would be surprised the amount of young ladies who come to see me because they have pelvic pain and my period hurts and this the minute someone leaves the room it's like i really need birth control because of xyz <laughs> so you you would never get that you right. ne- but then once and and and, and i do want to reassure parents who's listening i'm not in the habit of encouraging your child to not be honest so when we so at the confidential if something comes up that's not critical but i think it would behoove them to let their parents who are the number one advocates know we work around that i'm like okay so how can we tell dad or how can we tell mom do you think it's safe like what do you think is her biggest concern and i try to get them to be honest and open and sometimes we're able to successfully navigate that together and sometimes we're not and that's okay too because i'm okay being the person that they can come to to say this is happening how can you help me in this situation that's okay right and they're yeah. in the situation to begin with they they right. to be to right. begin with right you're only making it better not Only worse making it better right. you know i i actually have parents who i see before i see the kid it's not unusual that the parents have to speak to me in private before right you know for i just want to let you know and i'm like okay sounds good to me or you know after the visit i i need to call you after so we can really dig into the, in, into the details and i have had some parents who have demanded to know what do you you know what are the results or you know, I need that virginity check or some of these things. And if I have to drop the line and say, I will not do this, this is a morally wrong, or this is protected by the law, and I'm not going to divulge any, you know, any results to you. And that's just the way it is. And I have had to do that. And But that must be the exception. This is truly the, this is really the exception. <laughs> Most parents, to be honest, are really reasonable and <laughs> rational people. Right. And for the few that that have a problem, sometimes they don't come back. And, you know, I, I sometimes I'm just concerned and I always give the child my contact information or let them know their websites that they can go to. So even right. if they don't come to me, there are some websites that I do give out right. that they can get good information right. from. But the majority is like you said, it's, it's, it does work because you're it on works. the same page as the, as the kid, as the parents and yeah. everyone's, everyone's working together. Listen, these things. It's just an interesting yeah. concept. And, you know, we talk a lot about what if, what if, what if, but you know, like most things, most of the time, none of those things ever come up. It's right. Just everyone's, you know, really, really happy that you're there. Yeah. <laughs> we, it's it's usually you. it's usually a love story. I, right. <laughs> I, I know I love my families. They love me. We mm-hmm. really have a good relationship. And that's really important because a lot of times mom, this is a different generation. And there's so many things that are available now that was not available then. So many, so much more um, mental health issues. I think that's not really around, but really coming to light. So I think moms are very thankful that they have someone that they can navigate that with. And sometimes they call me because they're like, she doesn't believe me. Can you spend time talking <laughs> to her? And I'm like, absolutely. Right. I mean, I know that there's just in the past you know, year or so, you know, because I, I see basically pregnant women. So I don't have a lot of opportunity to refer, you know, adolescent gynecology to anybody. Uh, but, you know, I have friends and I have patients and I've got, you know, three calls in the past year from people I'm close with who said, you know, my daughter is A, B, and C, whatever it is. And what do you think? This is what the doctor said. And I said, go see Jalumpia. I said, please, <laughs> like, please, here's her number, Thank make an you. appointment, see her. And 
all three of them. And, and you know, one was an office visit, one was two offices, one was an operation. I mean, there was all these things. And each one of them sent back, say, thank God for her. <laughs> and thank God you sent us yeah. to her because it's just, it's night and day. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm obviously still your biggest fan. <laughs> I, I was when you were a young tadpole starting residency. <laughs> and now that you're the big fancy professor and oh, tag, uh, I remain <laughs> such. I'm so happy you came on. Thank you for coming. Thank you for talking about what you do. Thank you for helping uh, all these families and these you know, young ladies and their parents and everybody involved. The, the world is a better place with you and your colleagues in it. That is, that is for sure. As a parent, I can tell you that as well. You know, thank God there are people who do what you do. And we just wish you the best of luck and success with your career. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.